If you're a local government enthusiast who's looking for fresh conversations over a hot cup of morning coffee or tea or while you're driving or walking the dog, you do you. You're in the right place. Welcome to the Local Gov Cafe podcast, hosted by Susan Gardner and Ann Mitchell. This podcast is devoted to having conversations that matter, covering the full menu of municipal topics. You'll discover guests who bring insight and inspiration to the issues that drive and challenge communities. We'll be talking with leaders in policy, practice, consulting, and academia to put a spotlight on civic government and the people who make it all happen at the local level. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the cafe. We're serving up another great episode today, and we're excited to have you with us. Susan, why don't you tell us what's on the menu? Anne, I am so excited about our topic and our guests for this episode. Today, we're going to be talking about jargon and corporate speak, words and phrases that sneak into our vocabulary. Joining us to shed some light on the topic is Municipal Communications rock star, Brian Lambie, president of Breadbrick Communications. Now, Brian regularly provides training for a variety of public and private sector organizations and has been the primary communication strategist for AMO for more than 15 years. So he knows a thing or two about municipal communications. Today, we're going to leverage Brian's knowledge to unpack the murky topic of bureaucraties, baffle gab, and government speak. We'll do a little bit of blame storming, of course, and then Brian's going to help us create a roadmap to build capacity for using plain language as a core competency across the matrix. What do you think, Anne? Wow, that sounds really exciting. And I'm so glad that Brian could find some time to join us. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. I think you, you phased me a little there at Rockstar. Uh, so anyway, I will. Uh, I always like it when people set low expectations and then I can beat them. I'm not so sure we want these expectations so high, but uh, glad to be here. So Brian, recently there you put a term on LinkedIn called socialize the document. Tell us what that means and give us a few of the other annoying buzzwords that have infiltrated local government or just government. Well, personally, I think it means things have gotten out of hand, uh, but uh, we we have seen this creeping in with a number of clients where an idea that gets floated or, you know, a, 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 an idea that we want to share with others and get their, their thoughts on or a document that's going through approval process is being socialized. So they will socialize the document. They will socialize the, you know, the idea or concept to others in the organization. And, uh, you know, we, yeah, I have to explain to you what that means because you've never heard it before. And you have to, you, you've never heard it before because somebody made it up. And for some reason, it's getting traction and people are running around using that term, even though it's kind of nonsensical. But it'll be around for a while. Uh, we had paradigm shifts uh, for a long period of time. I don't know what we did before paradigm shifts, but then we, uh, boy, we went through a lot of them. You would think if that was a term that was useful, we would have been doing it a lot when everybody was pivoting during the uh, pandemic, right? But these kinds of terms prop up. And I think uh, socializing the document or so- socializing the idea is just the latest. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, it just means floating around, uh, you know, like if I if I want to get your your thoughts uh, and someone else's thoughts on on it, where I'm going to hand the idea over to a number of different people and get their ideas. So, okay. you know, uh, that would be in uh, uh, seeing how people like it. Actually, uh, it would be what it is. Uh, it used to be putting it through approvals. It used to be sharing it with your colleagues, but now you're socializing the document. 
which sounds a bit like you're like taking it to a dinner party. But anyway, <laughs> I, I love somebody's comment on, on the post. Um, if if this wordo shows up in your organization, break the glass and call Brian immediately. Yeah, well, it it is a sign again. Like I think it's just a sign that things have kind of gotten out of hand. But in all seriousness, I think it is important to recognize that these kinds of terms are not helpful really in any way. I, I, I really question who they serve. And I don't think they serve the universe very well. I don't think they serve organizations very well. And I'm not sure they serve careers very well. Uh, but uh, people don't tend not to think that way. I, I, I think that often we try to use terms like this to appear smart and uh, highly educated technically aware or whatnot. And uh, it tends to have the reverse effect with decision makers. I think a lot of the problem too, is that we in local government, we already have too many terms and acronyms that we use, but we're trying to do public engagement. And if we cannot speak clearly and concisely, then we're losing members of the public as well. Yeah. There's no question that anybody who starts a new job, particularly, I mean, it's not just the public sector, but if you are in a large organization and you're starting a new job, then you have a cheat sheet beside your phone or your computer that has, uh, you know, all the acronyms that people are using, uh, terms that you're not familiar with. And everybody's got that cheat, certainly at the start of their career in a, in a place. Now, um, you think about how it is when you start that new job and you have to write that down just to kind of navigate and get oriented in what's going on, because I think that speaks to the fact that they're not actually helpful. And where it worries me, and you see them all the time, are, are things like emergency management plans. So like when you look into crisis, plan, at crisis management or emergency planning, those emergency plans are full of ac acronyms. And I have no doubt that when they're smoke in the air, uh, people are flipping through those documents, trying to find what each of the acronym each of the acronyms means. And that is not the time you want to be doing that. Right. So there's all kinds of places where we have them as a convenience, I suppose, or as a tool, but I question whether they're actually serving us well. I would agree. I, I recall when I was new to the municipal sector myself and even, you know, among all the various associations and some of them with acronyms five, six letters long and all the associated programs that, that went with all these organizations as well. As you said, you really do need a, a cheat sheet and it can take years before you can really assimilate all of those into your language. And I guess the point is maybe we really shouldn't be doing that, really shouldn't be encouraging people to do that. I think we get a lot of the acronyms we get because people write them down and they're so used to writing and then they see it in writing so much that they start speaking it as though they should. But my favorite example of an acronym in government is, um, well, two of them really, and they're kind of the same thing. Uh, back in the Harris government, showing my age here, but uh, once upon a time when I was a kid, they had the who does what initiative mm -hmm. and that got referred to as WDW. Now, you go to meetings and everybody be saying WDW. That's quite a bit harder to say <laughs> than who does what. And we just kind of sit there and smile and say, you can call it who does what. It's easier, right? Uh, and then years later, we got the Dalton McGinty version of that. No one wanted to admit it, but it was the 
Joint Provincial Municipal Fiscal and Social Service Delivery Review, which had its own massive acronym. I'm not sure I can repeat it because I made a point of not learning it, even though I had to use it every day, right? But I would just refer to it as the review and everybody knew what I was talking about or the, you know, the fiscal service or the service delivery review. That was fine. Everybody knew exactly what I was talking about, but everybody else would say the JMF. PMFDR or something like this. I, I made a point of not learning it. So some of these words keep creeping into our vocabulary. So how can we strike them out and speak in a more clear, concise way, Brian? Well, I think, first of all, we need to we need to be sold on the benefit of it. So first of all, why would we do it? And I think there are some really important things to keep in mind. They're really simple ones that you need to drive home the, the benefit. People trust plain language more than they trust technical language. And if anybody's ever been, and, and most politicians know this because, you know, bureaucrats provide briefing notes on what is happening. And then elected officials stand in front of angry audiences, yelling at them saying, why are you doing this? And if you've ever been in the position of being yelled at, you learn very quickly that straight talk and plain language works far better than technical language. So the bureaucracy tends to arm the front line of the organization with technical information that is precise and accurate, but it doesn't work very well on the front line when people are yelling at you. So plain language builds trust. When you're in a complicated situation, whichever side can explain what's happening in simple plain language tends to win. And you've seen that with no shortage of politicians that have done this during election campaigns, but it's just, if you can explain it simply, people will trust you more. The other thing to look at is just what happens in terms of sharing information. You want to have something that'll ripple through the community on its own. Very few people hear that first wave of information that a government provides. Most people get it as secondhand information. So if you can provide that in plain language, it's going to cut through your community and 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 just ripple through the grapevine far more effectively. You have more control over the message as well. So there's benefit there. And the other thing we want to think about is, is in terms of people who formally tell our story. So if that's media, you know, media is using their, you know, even the Globe and Mail is written at about a grade eight, nine, 10 reading level. Uh, and meanwhile, in, you know, in Ontario, throughout the pandemic, for, for more than two years, we've had the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Long-Term Care producing media materials that are at a grade 17 or 18 reading level. And so they're sending that off to media. Media is not going to use them. They're going to talk to other people. And the people they're going to talk to are people who hate the government. And those people are going to be coming in at about a grade five, six, seven reading level. And those are the people that are going to get quoted, right? So um, I think we need to understand the benefit of plain language if uh, we're going to be decision makers and senior policy uh, people. And I think that is half the battle is understanding that we're not doing it because we're told to do it or we're supposed to do it. We're doing it because it works and it pays to be good at it. Now, that doesn't mean they have to do it all the time, but if you're a senior person in a senior role, uh, you should be able to speak to your subject area at a, you know, at a complicated, you know, like at an academic setting, but you should also be able to speak to it at about a grade six or seven reading level if you want to win. So I think yeah. the motive is half the battle. And I think a lot of times I know I'm married to somebody who's not in my sector and even I slip into the jargon, the language so what are some tools that we can use to, to get ourselves out of it? Because we assume we're sometimes speaking clearly and we aren't. So how can we give ourselves this check? So let's also give ourselves allowance to do it. A lot of people say it can't be done because it's not, we're not allowed to do it. We are allowed to do it. My wife is uh, my wife's a contract lawyer uh, with a very large organization. 
And she's been proofreading my crap for uh, 25, 30 years. I always joke, oh, 25 years anyway. I always joke that if I made a mistake, if I make a mistake, my wife will spot it. She'll find it and she'll point it out to me. So she's the perfect person uh, to proofread my stuff. And she's a real shark. Um, but she she also confided in me that she approaches contracts now. She's able to take legal contracts and sometimes turn three pages into a sentence. And it's helped advance her career to do that. And she, she sort of said, like, she just realized that it was possible. So knowing that we can do it and that the, the universe will allow us to do it is important. We hear a lot that uh, legally, that it's got to be legally correct. Well, it can be legally correct in, and in plain language. It just means we need to spend more time on it. I think a practical tool for a, a manager is everybody who heads up a department should be able to speak to that service level at grade 10, reading level or less. And if the first draft of a document that is going to go forward to the public comes out, the person who has to stay late to make it plain language is not a communications person or an editor in the organization. It is the person who is responsible for that area. So we, I think as management, we should have a culture where we force decision makers to be able to speak to their own responsibilities at a grade 10 reading level or less when needed. Now, there's some simple tools that we can use. Uh, everybody's always looking at people like Donald Trump. What are they doing wrong? Like, look at that train wreck. Well, one of the things Donald Trump does right, he's got to be doing something right. He speaks at about a grade five or six reading level. And he's got an incredible vocabulary of single syllable words. And if you watch him very carefully, he can cover every topic using those single syllable words. And then he only uses multiple, multiple syllable words for color. Fantastic, tremendous, spectacular. He just kind of throws that in as an exclamation mark. But most of his sentences are, if we don't build this wall, we're dead. So I think what we need to do is, is look at a document that's before us and look at just the words we have that are multi-syllable words and ask ourselves, how many of these can be turned into single syllable words? It's a very easy thing to do. And once you do that more often, you get good at it. You'll certainly eliminate the, the, the simple ones like utilize. There's no reason for the word utilize to exist. It can always be replaced with use. Once you kind of understand these sort of patterns, you can very, very quickly knock it into plain language just by focusing on single syllable words. Yeah. There's other things like that. We do train plain language training and there are day long courses, but there are other examples like that. That speaks a lot to the written word, written documents, where you have time to kind of ponder and evaluate and really dissect a document or sentence or word. How does that translate into when we're speaking? And, you know, do you have some tips for speaking in a more clear and understandable way, void of these bureaucraties terms. I think we're actually more inclined to naturally speak in a conversational way. And then we actually turn it off when we get into a situation where we feel that we come across, have to come across as looking smart. So if there's a major initiative at work, in a meeting with your colleagues, you'll explain it in a very technical way. And then when you come home from work and you're having a beer on the driveway talking to your neighbor, you will naturally explain it to your neighbor in plain language. You wouldn't use that technical term. And, and we always can. Like you can have that conversation, you know, when your neighbor says what happened at work today. And, you know, maybe we're allowed to say that what happened, right? If that's the case, <laughs> we'll deliver it in plain language naturally. But when we get into a work setting, we're afraid to do it. And I would, I always point out to people in those situations that when things get really tricky and people are really scared, 
they tend to bring in expensive consultants or highly paid lawyers uh, or people along that line. And the people who show up at the building in the nicest cars are the people who can explain the complicated things to the decision makers in plain language. Those are the people they trust the most. And so again, I, I think we need to resist the temptation to, you know, turn off our ability to speak in plain language. Conversationally, we all speak conversationally in plain language. It's when we take a written document that we tend to get carried away. And then often we're in professional settings where we feel that we have to regurgitate the document or speak in that way. And what decision makers really do resonate, the people they, the, the people that resonate with them are the people that they trust the most are the one who the ones who can speak at it at a at a uh, technical language like a, like a, like they can go deep into the plumbing and then rise right up into the stratosphere and make it uh, speak deliver the big picture in plain language and then go back into the plumbing and these these people are wizards uh, they are trusted uh, they are handed balls uh, they are given responsibility uh, those are the people that impress decision makers the most so I think understanding that we're we're not trying to um, learn it so much as we're trying to apply it and what about Brian a plain language policy or is that getting too formal um you know again I think like a policy I the one example I gave you, there is a policy where you require that you know if a first draft is is being presented to a public audience then the first draft coming out of the department needs to be at a grade 10 reading level or less so that's a policy and they need help with that. That's fine. But you can't hand it over. Often what happens is if people have a communications team, it gets handled over to the communications team and they just become editors and they do all, they just rewrite everything. They're required to do more responsible work and more, more um, challenging work than that, quite frankly. So, so that's a policy right there. But I think we, we need to encourage it more than demand it. And a lot of that decision comes from the top. And there are certainly places where people are following the pattern of a, of a CEO who tends to speak with that really technical jargon or the, these kinds of terms that, you know, like that, that socialized the document term may be coming from the very top. So it's a leadership style and expecting it from leadership as well as another thing that we're looking for. So you kind of mentioned it earlier and I think we could probably have a whole other conversation on this, but you mentioned, you know, it being legally correct. And so much of what municipalities deliver involves bylaws or resolutions or formal policy documents. And that idea of being legally correct and articulating things a certain way, uh, how far does that extend into the writing of bylaws? How far can we go into applying those principles of plain language to the writing of bylaws and policies? And if it does extend into that, how can we get the legal team on board? Okay, so every once in a while, I'll stumble across a a sign in a city park that is just quoting <laughs> the yeah. bylaw. So it's a wall of text that quotes the bylaw. And then I'll go to the neighboring municipality, and in the park, they'll have deliver the same message as an infographic, often with humor. And there's no question which one is more effective, right? Like the... The simpler one and the more visual one tends to get the message across to the public. You know, somebody's going to say, well, like, you know, in those municipalities where it's just the plain text that goes up or just the raw text, you know, somebody's going to say it has to be that way. 
It doesn't have to be that way. There are plenty of examples, usually right down the road, of things delivered in different ways. So the other thing we want to look at is if the bylaw is so technical that it's problematic, then the bylaw probably wasn't written well to begin <laughs> begin with. I'll give you just a really good example. I can vent just a little bit. You know, it's my job as the, the media person for the Association of Municipalities of Ontario to sing the praises of municipal government. We'll call it that. All right. So I'm trying to put a, a pergola on a deck at my house. And we're receiving information from the planning department and bylaws about what we can do and what we can't do and what procedures we have to follow. I can't, I can't understand what I'm getting from my municipal government. My wife is a contract lawyer with a gas company. She can't understand what we're getting from the city in terms of the instructions that we need to follow to follow the bylaw. And I would argue that, you know, like between the, between the two of us, I think there's five university degrees and a lifetime of contracts and a lifetime of working in municipal government. And we're having a hard time figuring out what we should do to follow the bylaws for a pergola, right? <laughs> that tells that the alarm bell should be going off on the writing of the bylaw. Yes. Right. In addition to how it's being communicated. So part of it is just a little, like really sincere commitment from the core to make plain language part of the way we operate. And there's no question. I work with a lot of different municipal governments. Some are better at it. Some are more committed than others. One of our new newly elected councillors last year, Brian, out here in Alberta, wanted us to specifically clear up the policies and bylaw. And when we asked him about that through the strategic planning process, he said, because nobody understands what these policies and these bylaws are, or what do they mean? And we felt moderately confident that we were doing a good job at that. But here's somebody who's new to local government and he felt they weren't. So there's always so much room for improvement. I well, it, here, here's another, this, this should explode the minds of many a bureaucrat. <laughs> you know, there's 3,000 elected officials in Ontario, and I don't know how many there would be across Canada, but let's say there's eight to 10,000 of them across Canada, somewhere in that range. Uh, statistically speaking, somebody has an illiterate municipal councillor who is hiding the fact that they're illiterate. Statistically, it's got to be the case. So, you know, if we look at Jacques Demers, who won the Stanley Cup, uh, or won many, many Stanley Cups as an NHL coach, when he retired as one of the most successful NHL coaches of all time, he made a point of disclosing that he was illiterate. And then he was made a senator. Right. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm sure he's been taking, he's like, I suspect that he, you know, used his retirement to learn how to read for the first time. Uh, but people get elected because they ran the local hardware store for many decades. They got elected because their town needed an arena. And this woman rallied forces to build the arena and get it done in a way that no one else had. So people encouraged her to run for office. That's how people get onto elected positions in municipal councils. It's not because they went to Harvard and they've got a strong LinkedIn profile, not even, not even close. In many cases, <laughs> it's a problem, right, to, to have that. So I think as staff, we need to think about that when we're presenting, we're presenting detailed reports and complicated information to councils and expecting them to be impressed by the initials after our last name and how technical the information is. Uh, somebody is presenting technical information to an illiterate municipal councillor, I'm sure of it. And that's not going to go so well two weeks later when that councillor is in a Tim Hortons lineup trying to explain what just happened. That's a big insight right there. 
That's a For big sure. I insight. Mean, people don't consider it at all. Yeah. And just even the density of the material that counselors have to read. I mean, the binders before a council meeting on, on the detail, there's no way they're going through all that detail. At a minimum, those reports should have a simple, plain language summary. And if, if only so that staff are forced into the position of being able to do it. Uh, and you asked about uh, policies. That's another one. There should be well, a couple of things I would think about in policies. One is that there should be a requirement for a plain language executive summary of a certain length and a certain grade reading level. And that's measured through Microsoft Word, folks. There's a tool in Microsoft Word that allows you to find out what grade reading level uh, the material's at. So the worst we've ever seen is a public meeting notice that was a grade 31 reading level for a conservation authority. So you need 31 years of education to follow that public meeting notice. Uh, that's not going to work. <laughs> um, the other thing that I, I think is important is nobody provides training to staff on how to present to council. This is another thing, like we get called in to provide social media training and, and media training and, and plain language writing training. But I've realized in the last couple of years that nobody is providing staff with training on how they should be preparing to present to council and how they should be delivering to council and how they should be answering questions from council. Whenever we're asked to do something like that, uh, the, the level of appreciation in the room is incredible. People are like, why didn't I get this on the first day? Ryan, just that's interesting because I've been doing that for about two and a half years now internally with my staff, how to present to council to yeah. keep to keep them at a different high level. And I've done it for a few other municipalities down here in southern Alberta, but it's kind of more or less to talk about how to have the meeting what's your role in the meeting, but how to present to council, because you're absolutely right. We're expecting these council members to make these hard, high level decisions and to be visionary. So we have to give them the information in an understandable manner so they can do their job. And, and I, there's no way that, like, I'm going to just going to make a wild guess that when you pr provide that kind of direction to staff, they don't see it as a burden. They see it as a window has been open. Thank you very much. Well, no, and it's right across the board, too, because some members of my staff, when I got here in 2018, thought that their role was to present and counsel was just to rubber stamp. And, you know, there's all these different perceptions that staff have and they need to understand. And then I have other members of directors that want to be very technical. And it's like you said earlier, because they are subject matter experts. Also, they want to sound like they know what they're talking about. But by telling them what council's expecting, what I'm expecting as a CAO, this has really helped our level at the council table because council is getting clear, concise information. And the staff is there to answer the questions and to be knowledgeable, but to give this information so that it's understandable, not just to council, but also to the public that's watching as well. And, and let's be really frank, we're not naive. There's times when when public servants are being expected to be technical and precise and we would as a as a tool to be boring. Like there's lots of times when the organization's quite happy with the fact that the bylaw nobody understands it because nobody wants that bylaw really to be enforced anyway. 
<laughs> right like or or you know we never really we, we don't want a ton of questions on this report uh so we're just kind of like here's the mess folks uh you know here's what it, and not that it's a bad thing but it's There's sort a of lot like of baffle gab a few pages yeah, you know like here it is and it's not fatal and away we go and we move on to the next thing right like i get that so there's going to be those moments but i just want to emphasize that the people who get promoted are the people who can do both the people who can present it with that technical precision in those moments, and then instantly move to the point where they can address the issues in plain language in a way that's credible and understandable, and it resolves it, it resolves a problem. Those managers that can seamlessly go back and forth between the two are the ones that get promoted to CAO eventually. Yeah, and the other reality is, if your career is going well, like if your career is going well, eventually you need to meet somebody like me. <laughs> unfortunately, right? Because, you know, you may be, a, a, you know, fantastic in the engineering department or in legal or in IT, but if you get to the point where you're getting promoted to have broad responsibilities, then you're getting promoted to the point where you have to be an effective communicator. And it's a, lar a learned skill. But if you're on the senior management team, it is a requirement of the job that you are a competent, successful plain language communicator. This has been a fantastic conversation and we've covered a lot of stuff. Now, Brian, as we prepare to wrap up here, I'm going to ask you to do this task of distilling this all down into one sentence. What's your best piece of advice around plain language and uh, stomping out bureaucraties? So first thing is, it's, a, it's just a plain language phrase. It can be done. <laughs> <laughs> right? like just like you can learn it you can apply it across the organization it requires you to lead by example absolutely right like something that i worry about is people will bring me in to work with their senior management team but then the cao doesn't sit in on that session if you're going to go down that road it needs to come from the top and you need to demonstrate it but it can be done and there's all kinds of simple tools that you can find online on plain language writing as well. Like a lot of this isn't rocket science. A lot of it's simple things and there's lots of free courses and there'd be LinkedIn courses and all these sorts of things that you can take as well to get good at this. And I would uh, just give some uh, some inspiration to those who are thinking of going down this road to uh, to give it some thought because those people who are good at it tend to get promoted. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a real Pleasure chatting with you as always. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us in the local Gov Cafe. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll join us next time as we welcome our next guest. You won't want to miss it.